Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And uh, today I would like to start out by just uh, letting you know that this event that we're having, September 27th, 28th in Dallas, Texas, it's the Wealth Formula Meetup uh, that we call Wealth 2.0, which I'm going to be talking about. Uh, is coming up September 27th, 28th. And uh, I don't even know if there's any spots available anymore because part of the thing is, yeah, I'm recording this in um, mid-August and I'm not sure exactly when we play this. But as of right now, there is only about, uh, I think there's definitely less than 10, seven or eight spots left. So if you can make it, we would love to have you because... This event is incredibly, incredibly valuable. I mean, beyond the cocktail party, uh, you know, and the, you know, the fantastic lecturers, we got people flying out like Tom Wheelwright and Doug Ludmel and uh, Dave Steele. But we also have the, you know, the bus ride that where we get to view all of these properties and see what this investment stuff is like up close and personal. But in addition to that, you get to meet each other, which is probably the most, uh, I would say, the most valuable part of this entire experience. I think most people who went to the first event would agree with that. And so definitely come and check it out. I mean, it is a fantastic event, um, you know, fantastic group of people. It's really you guys who make it up. Uh, check it out and go to wealthformulaevents.com if you're thinking about signing up, but do it quick. It may not even be there anymore. So Check it out. Now, uh, for those of you who couldn't make it, there's also Wealth Formula Network, which is an online community that exists in uh, perpetuity. And if you're interested in that, uh, go to uh, wealthformularoadmap.com. It comes with a course and some uh, you know, Facebook group and a platform and stuff like that. But the other thing is that every other week we're on this Zoom video conference call and people love it. So check that out, wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, today... Um, I'm going to talk about something uh, that's I think is kind of a little different and interesting. You know, last week I was uh, um, actually out of town. I was uh, in Santa Cruz. Uh, my daughter was at uh, at a, a, a camp there. It was an overnight camp. She's 10 years old, my oldest one, and it was our first time doing overnight camp. So my wife and I decided we would just hang out uh, with the other two um, and make sure that she didn't have a meltdown and we uh, we would have to drive up from Santa Barbara and come get her. So we just hung out. She did great. And, 
Um, we didn't have that much to do, but one thing that was interesting was that it coincided with Car Week in Monterey. So for you car junkies out there, you know this is sort of like, you know, the auctions and all that stuff that go on, all the fancy vintage cars and things like that. Um, I'd never been there before, and there was an opportunity to go to something called the Concorso Italiano. Now, you know, I'm a guy who still drives my uh, Toyota Prius from 2008 uh, that I purchased during my final surgical residency year. But I do have this uh, crazy fascination, appreciation for vintage Italian cars. So then, so I go to this thing, Concorso Italiano, and man, those old Ferraris are just beautiful. I'm not really into the new stuff. I got to tell you, I'm not really into that. It, the super race car looking stuff, I'm not really into it. But they're, um, these old ones are just gorgeous. And particularly, you know, I uh, I saw this, uh, one of the cars I really like is a Dino. And uh, there was a 1973 Ferrari Dino. It was silver. It was stunning. And I couldn't get out of my mind. So I got home and, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm at the YMCA in Montes, uh, you know, here in Santa Barbara and, and, uh, and I see this guy driving in, in his Dino. He's always driving this Dino. He's got this red Dino. And I talked to him once and he actually bought this thing brand new back in 1975. Now talk about a great, uh, investment that was, but um, anyway, I was talking about the event, and as it turned out, he was there too. And so he says to me, yeah, but Dinos are slow. He said, if I buy a new car, I'm going to buy a Tesla. Those things are crazy fast. And I'm looking at him going, oh, man, you got to be kidding me. And I said, but Teslas have no soul. Okay, so I know a lot of you probably have Teslas and stuff like that. But they are kind of like, you know, robots, right? There's not that really that pretty. I mean, to me, with this guy, so I'm talking. We're talking about two different things. He was talking about performance, right? I mean, Teslas are crazy fast, and I was talking about art. Now, I'm not much of an art guy, you know. I don't really know. I'm not like a sophisticated art person. That's my wife. Um, but, uh, but I think that my love, uh, you know, my appreciation for old Italian cars in particular, probably is much more in line with an art critic, you know, appreciating a fine piece of art than, uh, you know, like Andy Warhol or something, rather than a guy who just wants a super fast car and, and is interested in that kind of thing. Because I could I could care less. I mean, it's not like I could drive that fast in the street anyway. I mean, I'm just, you know, I like the way it looks. Anyway, um, and as far as the, the, the Dino goes, it doesn't matter to me that it's slow. I just want to look at it, appreciate it for what it is. I mean, the thing's a sensory masterpiece, right? You ever heard of Ferrari? I mean, of course, listen to them. I mean, uh, listen to them and, and you'll know uh, that it's a very distinctive sound. So you've got the way it looks, which is absolutely gorgeous. And it, you hear it and you're like, oh, that's that Ferrari noise. Now, those new Teslas, well, you can't hear them because they're electric and, uh, you know, drive deaf people crazy because they, you know, or people can't hear crazy because you sneak up on them all the time. And you know what? In my opinion, again, I know some of you you got them, but I think they're kind of ugly, especially that SUV, all right? That SUV, which I was thinking would be cool to have a Tesla SUV when, when I heard one was coming out because they don't like stopping for gas. 
It looks like an overgrown Prius. Okay. And I have a Toyota Prius. It looks like an overgrown Prius, but it costs a lot more than my Prius did in 2008. By the way, I got to tell you, the Toyota Prius I have in 2008, this thing's a machine. I mean, gosh, I, you know, I've only, you know, other than getting a little tune up here and there, changing the brakes and getting a new set of tires, the thing is like a, a the thing is rock solid. It's got over 100,000 miles on it. Never has any problems. It's amazing. And all I do is drive back and forth from the YMCA anyway. So what do I need it for, right? Anyway, so why did I go to this thing anyway? Right? Why do I go to this thing? Just to torture myself with envy? No, in fact, I've been thinking about, you know, beginning, uh, you know, to, to become sort of maybe a collector, right? And to buy my first vintage car. Now, there's a few I have in mind. You know, I told you I love Ferraris, but I also think that there's some really cool other cars too. For example, um, late 60s, Lincoln convertible. You got the whole suicide doors thing, uh, you know, it's like this beast that just takes over the road. Super cool. Um, now, listen, a, a, a few years ago, you know, I, I would have really considered anything that I'm talking about right now completely frivolous. And the reason is because I never saw it as an investment. And uh, while it's true, buying a, you know, fancy new car uh, would uh, guarantee, you know, the guarantees that you lose money as soon as you drive it off the lot at least for the foreseeable future, uh, buying one that has already, you know, gone down the pendulum of full depreciation and value and then pivoted to become a collector's item is a totally different animal. Now, the new car is what Robert Kiyosaki would call a doodad. Remember, he called that in, in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and Cashflow Quadrant. He called him a doodad. It's an expense, right? Um, well, in my view, a vintage car would be an asset. Now, he would say it doesn't put money in your pocket, so it's not an asset, but I disagree with that. I think of it as an asset. So, um, you know, gold doesn't cash flow either, and Robert likes that stuff. So, uh, in my opinion, I'd rather have a, a Dino or, you know, one of these uh, other, uh, you know, one of these old 1960s Ferraris and stuff like that a few ounces of gold any day because I can like, because they look really cool and I want one. Um, in the world of the affluent, uh, this stuff is actually not that uncommon. Uh, the theme of buying things that you can enjoy today and have is something, uh, you know, with more value in 10 years is actually quite common. And I have to tell you, I didn't really notice it until some of my friends have got, you know, a lot of money. Um, they, they started to sort of point this lifestyle out to me. And I thought, gosh, that's kind of cool. And if you can afford it, it's actually a very, very smart way to live. And, you know, you can start with smaller things, you know, it doesn't mean you jump to $300,000 cars, but you know, if you really like watches, you know, maybe buy something that's a little bit more expensive and, you, you know, and, and, and just hold on to it for a long, long time. I mean, the other thing about older stuff I noticed, and maybe, you know, maybe uh, you might disagree with me on this, but the older stuff was really not meant to have sort of an expiration date, right? I mean, if you bought a watch, and I'm not a watch guy at all, right? Like I, I can't even, you know, it's hard enough for me to keep my wedding ring on. I just don't like to have things in my hands. But, you know, if you're a, a, a watch guy, um, these older watches, these classics, they're made to like last forever. And, you know, they have a little problem, you go work on them, whatever. 
the new stuff, it's not really made to last. It sort of has this sort of expiration date. It's made to last for a period of time, then you're done. But, you know, the old stuff is different that way. Um, so anyway, it's a, it's a very smart way to live, too, in my opinion, to buy things of value. Um, and, you know, you can think about it like you could talk about cars, you could talk about furniture, watches, wall decorations. Um, if you buy them new, brand new, and you buy them from Ikea, they're going to be worth zero for for sure someday. I mean, that's that's just a reality. What if you could replace all of those things into appreciating assets? And that's a completely different lifestyle, and I think it's pretty neat. Now, it's a very interesting way to live and one that I'm really starting to warm up to, I have to say, and that's not easy for a guy who still drives his 12-year-old Toyota Prius to the YMCA every morning. Now, um, now listen, I do get that not everyone can afford to spend $300,000 or $500,000 on a vintage car or $3 million on a piece of art, but financial technology is actually making it more and more easy for people to have access to these kinds of assets, for exposure to these assets. And um, and and these type, types of things were just not available or possible uh, for most of us uh, in our reality, say, like five, ten years ago. Um, now, what about, you know, say, let's going back to art. Let's, you know, how about owning an Andy Warhol? Did you know that right now, literally right now, there is an opportunity to invest as little as $25 and own part of a famous Andy Warhol piece. I mean, you can even visit the painting at a gallery in New York and enjoy it for yourself. I mean, this whole new world of investing is very, very exciting to me, if you can't tell. And my guest on this week's Wealth Formula podcast is one of the entrepreneurs. This guy's brilliant, who's really making it happen. So if you want your piece of that Warhol or whatever blue chip artist you get excited about, listen uh, to Scott Lynn. Uh, he's our guest for Well Formula Podcast after these messages. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula podcast is Scott Lynn. Scott has been an active collector of contemporary art 
for more than 15 years and has built an internationally recognized collection of abstract expressionism that has included works from Clifford Still, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, and more. He's also the founder and CEO of Masterworks, the first company to allow investors to buy shares of masterpiece art like Picasso's, Monet's, and Warhol's. Scott, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks, Buck. Excited to be on. Great. So, you know, let's start out a little bit uh, with your background because I was kind of reading up on it. it. Sounds like you've kind of got a, a background, a significant tech background and also internet marketing. Um, and uh, I, I, so where does the art come from? Is that just, a, did that start as a, a, a passion project that sort of as an entrepreneur that you just found a, a, an in, inefficiency for? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I started collecting art when I was very young. So I was probably... Uh, 19 years old and, and on the Masterworks website of a, a blog article that sort of talks about the, uh, the learnings with, with, uh, with doing that at a young age and being a, a first time collector. Um, but it really, it really was just a passion. It was a, it was a hobby as I think it is for, for most people when they start collecting. Got it. And, and um, how did this sort of, um, you know, how did this evolve? Because obviously when you're a young kid, you're not really and you don't have any money. I mean, how do you even, I mean, were you just buying stuff that you liked or were you looking at things as an investment even early on? Yeah. I mean, I, w- I was a little bit of a, uh, an unusual situation that I, I started my first company when I was 16 or 17. So I think when I was in my, you know, 20, 21, I was running uh, one of the top dot-com companies at the time. So I was super fortunate to make money at a very, very early age. Um, so I was buying real art. I mean, I was buying Picasso's. Um, the first great painting I bought was a painting by an artist named Mark Chagall. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. It, yeah. So, you know, I, 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 I guess I was, I was buying real art, but I was also making a lot of mistakes at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the art market was very different in the late 90s than it is today. Um, you know, it was, it was definitely a market, but it wasn't, it wasn't, I guess the average person didn't really think of it as an investable asset class. So it, sure. it, you know, it was, it was really just a, a very um, niche collector market is how, yeah. how I would describe it. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about fine art as an investment. As you know, um, you know, my audience is jam packed full of, of, you know, active accredited investors. Uh, we tend to focus on uh, assets like real estate, um, you know, in various classes within real estate. Um, what is the, what is the case for someone who's got real estate, maybe some equities, et cetera, uh, to add fine art to your portfolio? Yeah. I, I think if you look at certain segments of the art market and a, a firm named art price has published some of this research, um, uh, firms like Deloitte have published other components, but if you put it all together, Basically, what you conclude is that the blue chip segment of the market, and that's really defined as art created by the top 100 most selling artists. So these are household name artists like Picasso, Monet, Warhol, Basquiat, etc. That segment of the market has outperformed the S&P for the past several decades. But maybe as importantly, it's uncorrelated. Um, So Citibank did the first correlation study on the asset class in 2015. And they concluded the correlation between art and the S&P was roughly 0.11. Similarly, if you look at correlation between art and other asset classes, it's close to zero. So what that means very high level is if you're you're allocating capital to art um, and the the public equity markets decline, theoretically, art should not move move in the same pattern. 
So we think it's this, this really interesting hedge almost against other asset classes that just behaves differently due to that lack of correlation. So <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about, because one of the things you mentioned was uh, because I've seen these, uh, you know, these outperforming uh, S&P 500, I've seen, you know, performance measures. And can you talk a little bit, a, a little bit more detail in terms of what, how, you know, what determines the art that you're counting um, uh, that goes into those uh, rankings or those comparisons rather? Yeah. So the, the art market is, is like any other market in that there, you know, there are all different types of assets in the market that have different risk return profiles. Um, so there's, there's emerging artists, there's mid-career artists, there's what we refer to and our price refers to as blue chip art. When, when we talk about blue chip art, which is really our focus and what we think is the most interesting segment of the market to invest in, that literally is just the top 100 artists by transaction volume. So we just stack rank all of the artists from top to bottom, take the top 100 and analyze that, that segment of the market. Now, interestingly, and a lot of people don't realize this, you know, there's been hundreds of thousands of artists over the, over the you know, I, I guess the number of centuries that have existed. There's really 100 artists that, that compromise 60, 62% of the art market overall on a dollar-weighted basis. So when you talk about the top 100, most of which are no longer living, that really is the majority of the market. Right. So, um, okay, so say I'm a, you know, say I'm worth $50, $100 million. Uh, I'm interested in beginning to collect myself. Um, how, how do you even get started? And, and when you talk about, for example, you're talking about the blue chip art, what is the, you know, what is the price point that you're potentially looking to enter on if you're doing it as an individual and where do you start? Yeah, that's a very good question. So we, we get this question a lot. It, it, it really varies by artists, but I would say that to really get blue chip exposure in today's market on a per painting basis, you're probably spending, you know, one or two to $5 million per painting per artist. Um, so when you think about allocating, you know, certainly if you, if you have a hundred million dollars, you can allocate effectively by purchasing paintings. Um, but outside of that, you know, it's, it, it's, it's challenging to allocate to with, um, with just buying whole paintings. Got it. And is there, uh, you know, one of the things I was curious about, and I have to, I just tell you the, for me personally, this is completely foreign. My my wife is always interested in uh, talking about potentially starting to get collecting uh, collecting art, but is is I'm I'm about vintage cars are about as close as I get to art personally right now. Because I remember watching it, this episode of sixty Minutes uh, recently, and there was this like big thing about art fraud um, yeah. and from art collectors you know around the world and they were spending all this money and some of them they're finding their forgeries how big of a problem is that and how do you mitigate risk you know I'm on the board of an organization called IFAR which is the International Foundation for Art Research which is one of the, the leading art authenticity uh, nonprofits and you know, it's, it certainly happens in the art market. It, it's, it's a rare occurrence when you look at the, the total volume of art overall, and it tends to happen at the lower end of the market. So prints tend to be often faked, um, or very simple drawings, like Picasso drawings, tend to be often faked. But at the high end of the market, at least for what Masterworks is doing, we're, we're purchasing paintings that have strong provenance, they've been in museums, they, they, have, they, have, a, uh, they have a real history behind them. So the history to a certain extent is already written. So the likelihood of fraud is, is you know, I, I, you can never say non-existent, but very, very low for that segment. Yeah. And so, um, 
is that, you know, are you buying these typically at auctions where, you know, you, you can already describe, you know, you already have all the provenance like you mentioned. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the masterwork strategy so far has been to acquire yeah. everything at auction. Um, and that's really to give investors comfort. So, right. it, you know, the, it, these questions around authenticity or, you know, price, things like that tend to go away if people know that we've acquired paintings in a public auction contract. Right. right. So let's talk specifically about Masterworks, because I have to say, I mean, I think it's it's just a brilliant concept. Um, can you tell us, so tell, tell us how it works and, uh, you know, at a, at a high level uh, first, and then if you would, just kind of take us step by step through the process of, of how one would potentially get uh, exposure to art. Sure. Yeah. So very high level, like we talked about is, you know, if you're an investor and you conclude in today's world that you want to allocate 5% to art, there's, there's not an effective way to do that other than by buying paintings. And for all the reasons they've talked about, I think the vast majority of people don't know anything about the art market and really don't, don't even necessarily want to know about the art market, but recognize that it's this interesting asset class. So our approach to solving that problem has been to go out, purchase an individual artwork, a single artwork, um, using balance sheet capital, file that painting with the SEC to go public, very similar to how, to how Uber goes public, um, and then sell shares in that painting so everyone can gain, gain exposure to that, that individual asset. Um, so that's, that's the platform we have today, and that's, that's how you, you really allocate these assets. So most of our investors, when they think about building a portfolio of art, they're thinking about purchasing shares and different paintings over time so they can, they can construct a securities portfolio rather than a, than a paintings portfolio um, of whole assets over time. So let me ask you this, because one, uh, as I had uh, sort of alluded earlier, we have a fairly sophisticated audience, and probably there are people wondering at this point, wait, so you're going to actually file this with the SEC? You're not going to do some kind of a Reg D exemption, but then these are you know, asset specific offerings. So isn't that a long process? Like to, to, uh, you know, take a, a piece of art. So presumably you're, you're, the, you guys are buying it yourself because there's no way you'd be able to, you know, raise capital that quickly on a particular piece of art. If you were not doing some sort of a reg D exemption, can you just explain kind of like the nuances there? Because uh, I, I, that's probably something that, you know, people are curious about. Sure. Yeah. So we, we've created this, this community today of, of really exclusive investors interested in art as an asset class. Um, so the minimum investment per painting is $10,000. Uh, there, there are certain cases for various reasons why people may not meet the accredited criteria. And that's, that's why we filed these with the SEC. Um, you know, I would, I would say that the, the, other, the other benefit that these qualified offerings give investors, and one of the things that we struggle with a lot as a business, there's a lot of people that, that aren't involved in the art industry that look into the industry and say, this is a messy, unregulated industry that sort of operates with lots of people that, you know, maybe we can't trust. Right. And these qualified offerings do bring a new level of transparency to an asset class that historically has been entirely unregulated. So we frankly use it as a selling point and a trust signal so investors can, can get comfortable with the asset class. Got it. So is there, like, um, you mentioned something about a, a, another group where there's a minimum of 10,000. What is that? Is that a, is it a separate group that you have or a separate type of platform or, or whatever that is, uh, that is uh, dealing primarily with uh, uh, accredited investors or? 
No, I mean, hundred percent of our hundred percent of our offerings are these these qualified SEC offerings. Right. Uh, again, that has less to do about investor size and more to do with just bringing transparency to the asset class. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so so hundred percent of the offerings are are um, registered qualified offerings. So so it's interesting. I um, you know I'm thinking about the process and just the nuances, and I apologize for just pounding on this a little bit. But so you buy these you buy these pieces of art. You guys are buying them, right? Yeah, with our, with our own capital. That with your own capital, and then how long does it actually take? Out of curiosity, to get the actual SEC registration from there. Yeah, it's a great question. So we, I mean, the SEC had never seen a product like this before. Yeah. So we, we filed our first painting to go public with the SEC, um, uh, you know, a year and a half ago. And I think it took 14 months to get the first one qualified. Yeah. So that, that was certainly a long process. Um, we think on a go forward basis, that process is, is around 45 days. And we have two other paintings right now that we filed subsequent to that, that are uh, in the process of being qualified. And that, that looks like the amount of time it'll take. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's probably just some additional advantages there too, where like, if you're trying to take a, a you know, 10, $20 million uh, painting down, uh, you don't have to deal with like the reg, you know, a, a, an entity where you have a 99 investor limit or whatever. So that's cool. Um, let's, let's uh, kind of uh, <clears throat> move on a little bit. I just curious. Um, so it's an art, art piece specific fund. So it's not just like a blind fund where you're just buying art, right? So you just, so you'll post, okay, we have a, uh, like a Warhol, like, and I, I believe you had a Warhol re- or something like that recently, right? Um, yeah. Go ahead and t- tell us how that's, how that worked. Yeah. So we, we have a Warhol that's still available. I, I think the offering will probably be sold out sometime in the next uh, week or two. So it's, it's mm-hmm. almost complete. Um, and then we have two, two other paintings coming up, coming up after it, but, uh, yeah, I mean, investors can can see the individual assets, so it's not technically a fund. They're really individual vehicles that hold individual paintings. Right, and that, that's that's sort of a strategy that we we believe in. We we think maybe there's an opportunity in the future to do a fund, but we we really think with art, it's important that you can see the asset, analyze the individual asset, come to your own conclusion around your investment thesis with that painting, and then decide how much capital to allocate. Yeah. And part of, you know, part of art in general is it, it, it is a visual asset. It's sort of, um, you know, unlike a reach or something that might be a bit more technical, it is nice to see these paintings and make a decision before you allocate. Yeah. yeah. And I, I would just add too that I, I'm a big fan of the asset specific offerings as a general rule, even in real estate, because of, there's a certain level of efficiency of capital for investors. Um, you don't have dead money sitting around waiting to acquire something, you know. Um, and I think that's, that's another advantage. Um, what, um, so we talked, so what other, I mean, I don't know how long you've been doing this, but you know, do you have some other, uh, examples of artists that have gone through this process? So the, the Warhol is the first painting that, that we've done. So the business mm-hmm. has been around slightly more than, than a year and a half. Um, and as I mentioned, that, that's really the first, the first painting on the platform. Got it. Uh, we have, I, I think 18,000 investors signed up now. And then we, uh, the next painting that, that will be coming up in the near future is a uh, is a Claude Monet, um, and that's a that's a seven million dollar painting. Wow. So, you know, the, we intend to roll out one of these paintings every every month or so um, for people to allocate to. Cool, cool. And once you buy the art, where do you keep it? Because obviously, you know, it needs to go somewhere really, really safe. 
Yeah, that's a great question. So we have, uh, for your listeners that are in New York, we have a gallery in Soho at West Broadway in Broome. So anyone can stop by the gallery at any point in time during the day and see the paintings. Um, at some point, we, we will likely cycle those paintings either into fine art storage or send them on exhibition when, when institutions or museums have relevant, relevant shows for artists. Um, so like even with the Monet, the Denver Art Museum last year had a um, uh, Monet landscape show for late 19th century Monet landscapes. That, that was a really relevant show for the painting that we own. Got it. And so that actually solves another issue, which is like, you know, people who like to buy these types of things, they like to actually go and feel like they own it. So you've kind of, uh, you've kind of actually circumvented that challenge right there. Um, is the, I presume there's a big process of insurance and re, you know, how, how does that work? I mean, you got to, it's got to be pretty expensive to insure this stuff too, right? Yeah. Insurance is, is obviously a, uh, a critical issue that we think a lot about. Um, we, take those insured values and we adjust those effectively to NAV for investors so that they're always, they're always fully insured if something happens to a painting. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, insurance is critical. It, it is interesting when you think about real estate compared to art with art, you do have insurance, you have storage and transportation, but you don't really have significant carrying costs. Right. Um, these assets are pretty, pretty easy relatively to maintain. Sure. So it's 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 nice from that perspective that that you you don't really have a um, an expense drag on the returns over time. So you're probably I mean you've got to have a sense uh, early on just to to factor in the cost of insurance et cetera how long the hold period is. Talk a little bit about that. How do you decide? You know, um, do you know from the get go the idea is we're going to hold this for you know ten years? We're going to hold this for five years? How does that work? Yeah. So art is art is very similar to real estate and illiquid asset class, um, we tell people that they, they really should um, expect that there's, there's really no liquidity in the investment for the first few years. Um, it's very hard to purchase a painting and sell a painting immediately after you buy it for a whole host of reasons that are specific to the art industry. So I would think about the, the whole period in general between three and seven years. Um, Masterworks as a company is in the process of launching trading windows so that investors have the ability to sell their securities rather than, than, than um, only rely on us to sell the painting. So there, there will be some ability for investors to get liquid before the painting sells, but those trading markets haven't launched and it's, it's unclear at this point how much liquidity there will be. Mm -hmm. um, so I still think it's important for investors to think of these as, as three to seven year illiquid holds. Are you looking at, are you looking at a curiosity uh, at any of the um, uh, tokenization models for that? We, I mean, we, we hear about blockchain stuff all the time. Uh, you know, I think it is, um, it's certainly interesting. Uh, the reality is we live in a very regulated world. All of our offerings sure. are filed with the SEC, qualified by the SEC. Um, we have a broker dealer on the offerings who is governed by FINRA. Uh, you know, the, the, the blockchain stuff is interesting, but from a regulatory perspective in the U.S. at least, I think we're a long way from, um, from making that a reality. Well, they're certainly making some strides. You see T0, which is Patrick Burns' uh, new platform, and there's, you know, that's a, uh, basically securities, uh, tokenized securities, but it's um, but that's certainly making things easier. Um, so that's uh, that's uh, 
that's uh, that's really interesting, though. So in terms of the liquidity part of it, you do think that if you did it as of right, if you, the way you were thinking about theoretically, it would just be some platform within your business that you would be able to exchange or buy shares, correct? Correct. And it's very similar to how um, Lending Club, for example, works with Folio to power a trading platform within their ecosystem. Got it. Got it. Well, um, uh, let's talk a little bit about sort of where you think this is going, how you're going to, how you're going to continue to grow this. Um, you know, any other features that you think that you're going to have on masterworks over time, obviously, cause it's brand new. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, high level, one of the questions we get a lot is how, how do you, how do you think about, um, the factors that are driving our prices over time? And, and, you know, how do we think about that 10 years from now, 20 years from now? So we, you know, we have a research team at Masterworks and we, we've done a lot of work studying art market returns in general. And it sounds like your, your listeners are familiar with real estate, so they're probably familiar with Case Shiller, mm-hmm. which is an index that tracks returns of, of real estate. So one of the things that, that we've done from a research perspective is frankly um, try to replicate what Case Shiller did with real estate several decades ago. Mm-hmm. So as I, as I mentioned earlier, roughly half of the art market trades through public auction. So our research team has went back in history and identified um, at this point over 35,000 times a painting has been purchased and then later sold publicly to understand the returns on individual objects and then to construct an art market index to, to analyze art market returns. Um, and that's led to a lot of questions and, and some answers around, around really what's, what's driving prices in the art market. So we think there's there's two main things that drive prices in the art market and, and are, are correlated with price increases. One very high level is that we believe art prices are correlated to ultra wealth creation on a global basis. So the, the wealthier people get around the world, the more we expect art prices to go up. Sure. And we, we haven't proven that yet, but there, there does seem to be some correlation between, for example, art prices and luxury goods indexes. Um, the second thing that we believe, uh, which, which we, we, we can show, I think is, is, is correlated, is art is one of the very few asset classes where you have a continuing decline in supply. And this is, this is really unique to art overall, but if you think about a particular artist such as Andy Warhol, so Warhol, when he was living, made all these paintings. He subsequently died. Sure. Uh, paintings got acquired by collectors, and then collectors tend to donate those paintings to institutions when they pass away, when they get divorced, when they go through life events. So every single artist market over time has this continuing decline in supply, which we believe drives prices up. Sure. And, and even if I look at um, the artists that I collect personally and artists that I know really well, I take an artist like Jackson Pollock, um, to my knowledge, there's, there's 21 drip paintings, sort of iconic paintings that exist in private collections today. Um, out of those 21, there's only a handful that I think any art critic would regard as, as good drip paintings, meaning you know, well-executed good paintings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the remaining are probably B or C examples but those BRC examples are still selling for $30 million because there's nothing else left. So if you want to own a drip as a collector, those, those are the paintings that, that you can buy. So that, that dynamic of decreasing supply is really unique. And you know, I, I tend to think about other asset classes like real estate or like gold where supply is actually increasing, right? With gold, you're mining more gold every single year. With real estate, you're building more homes every single year. 
so I think it's uh, you know I think it's unique to the art market that that uh, that you have declining supply for these individual artists. Yeah, absolutely. It's a deflationary thing. Whereas in in even in real estate, we we have finite you know places where we can build and stuff. But at the end of the day, if we're talking about a specific uh, artist, you're just not gonna you're you're just not gonna see more of it, especially since they're dead. <laughs> so. Right. So um, that's fantastic. Well, look, listen, where where can we learn more and how can we get involved? Yeah, so you know, go to uh, www.masterworks.io. Um, anyone can sign up to apply for a membership to begin investing in these paintings. If they mention your, your name, we're happy to let them uh, skip the wait list. Uh, we have a wait list now of several thousand people. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll hop on the phone with them, walk them through the asset class, high level, talk about particular offerings that we have available and uh, get them involved. Fantastic. Scott, thanks for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks, Mark. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I got to tell you, I really love this concept. I mean, to be clear, I'm not saying I'm putting money into this. I'm not saying that at all. So don't, uh, don't ever take me thinking a topic is interesting as a direct, um, you know, go put money in that yourself recommendation. That's not what I'm doing. I just think it's really interesting. The idea of, you know, taking something that you love, that you have a passion for, that you have an interest in and being able to invest in it and actually make money. To me, that is super cool. And going back to my vintage car thing, you know, it's funny. I actually was thinking, gosh, this would be so cool if you did this with vintage cars and maybe you could even, you know, whoever invested a certain amount could go and like drive them once in a while. How cool would that be? And as it turns out, Scott was telling me there's somebody who's doing that. So we'll get him on the show too. Um, by the way, uh, just because you buy a pricey asset, it doesn't mean you're completely illiquid. I mean, that's one of the things that you think about, right? So you're buying a classic car, you're buying a watch or whatever. It doesn't mean that you have to be completely illiquid with vintage cars, for example, I know this for a fact because I've already looked into this. You can cash out, you can you know you can finance these things, you can refi them, uh, and according to Scott, you can do the same with art too. So you can again, it goes back to that whole um, concept of buy, borrow, and die uh, paradigm, which is very common uh, in the affluent uh, uh, scheme. So anyway, uh, it's certainly if nothing else, this was fun to talk about, and hopefully you enjoyed it as well. Now we're going to have. Uh, lots of interesting conversations coming up shortly, September 27th to 28th in Dallas at our Wealth Formula Meetup. Uh, so if you haven't done so, make sure you check that out at wealthformulaevents.com. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, Consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.